everybody. How you doing? And welcome to the John Riley Project. We're here coming at you Wednesday, a little bit after two today. But thanks again for joining us. You know, um, we're going to get into topics today are, are mostly going to be about the San Diego's Sarah High School. They just went through a name change. And I want to kind of break that down. I think this is a really interesting topic to discuss. And, you know, if time permits, we're going to maybe even get into a little bit about trickle-down economics. I've been having some interesting conversations with two of my friends, Larry and Dana, online, and I thought maybe we might talk about trickle-down. But but I really want to get into my primary topic will, today will be the San Diego Sarah High School name change, because uh, there's just so many interesting tangents to that story. Uh, but, you know, this is a live stream. We're on live streaming on Facebook and YouTube. That means we will take your comments and questions. Just type them in right there below in the comment section. They'll pop up on my screen right here. I'll see them and then um, I'll read them on the air. And already someone chiming in. uh, I guess this is Dana. Did you know that I graduated from Sarah High School? You know, I think you told me that, Dana. So we're going to talk about Sarah High because I think this is a really good topic to discuss. And um, uh, so anyways, yeah, that we're, that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about and we're going to get into a lot of other name changing topics, which I think is a fascinating issue because there's a lot of schools and sports teams and, and, and a lot of interesting name changes that we can discuss. But um, just want to just let you know, right? I want to share my excitement is we're just getting going with March, right? I used to always say March and October were my two favorite sports months and Last March, you know, we got robbed, right? We got robbed of March Madness. We got robbed of the greatest basketball tournament, just all the the fun with that event. And we also got robbed out of baseball. They canceled spring training. We didn't have opening day until, gosh, like late July. Um, so it's it feels like we're going to have a good March. So I'm excited about that. The Mountain West Conference tournament is about to start. The Aztecs will play their first game tomorrow at 12 noon. So I'm hoping I can have that on a little screen off to the side while I'm working. Uh, but I'm really fired up for it. And then, you know, I tell you a lot, I go down to the uh, down to the Postal Annex here in Poway next to Target. And there's a guy that runs the place. He's the, the franchise owner. His name's Dennis. He's a huge Dodger fan. And so we always have bets, Padres, Dodgers. And we used to always have bets where it was a three-game series and whoever won the series, you know, the other guy, the loser, had to buy him lunch. And we did that, um, you know, in 2018 and in 2019, and I ended up buying a lot more lunches than he bought for me. So we just made a new bet, and it's going to be for the whole season because they play each other 19 games, so it can't finish 500. He's got the Dodgers. I have the Padres. And we're... Going big time, my friends. We're betting a hundred bucks, a hundred dollar gift card at the uh, winner's choice. So I'm not sure how this is going to sort out, but I think it'll be fun. So, um, but if you get a chance, go visit Dennis at Postal Annex right next to the Target here in Poway. Great guy, and they do really good work there. You know, for shipping and notary and fingerprinting and um, what else do they do? Passport photos. I mean, it's like the the ultimate utility infielder for any business. They do everything there. And it's just a really good crew. So, okay. So um, let's get into 
this whole notion of Sarah High School, you know, Dana's alma mater, has changed its name. And there's an article that appeared here in the San Diego Union Tribune. And I think this was today. And it says San Diego Unified changes the name of Unipra Sarah High School and removes the Conquistador mascot. And it's a really great article. And so it turned out that you know, the, this was really student driven. You know, the students at the high school pushed for this and now they've renamed um, Sarah High School or Unipra Sarah High School as Canyon Hills High School. And, um, it, and, and the reason, you know, for obvious reasons, they, they felt that the name of Unipra Sarah was offensive to the indigenous people whose ancestors were subject to their doctrine. You know, we're talking about the missions, you know, we're talking about the Padres, you know, the name of the San Diego Padres. We're talking about those priests that set up the California missions. Father Unipracera, of course, was the, the head honcho of that group. And the school was named after him. And, you know, th- there's a lot of history. And we're going to get into that in this podcast. But they're also renaming their mascot, no longer the Conquistador. Now they're going to call themselves the, the Rattlesnakes or actually Rattler. So they'll be the Canyon. What did I say? It was the Canyon Hills Rattlers will be their team name. And um, and so, yeah, the students, they, they organized this. They said it was offensive and racist, their school name. And the Conquistador mascot was also, you know, was also racist and offensive because the Conquistador is all about the Spanish colonization of the Americas when the Spanish conquerors carried out a genocide of the indigenous people, killing millions by disease and by force. Um, and this, and, and they actually, they talked to a lot of the indigenous tribes like the Kumeyaay Nation here in San Diego. And they were in agreement. Of course, you'd expect them to be in agreement. And the chairwoman uh, for the Kumeyaay Heritage Preservation Council, uh, she said, her name is um, Angela Elliott Santos, this very important name change starts the process of telling the truth. And this is, this is just really good stuff. And then the Kumeyaay Nation is going to participate with San Diego Unified, and they're actually going to um, acknowledge that the school was built on Kumeyaay land, and they're going to create an accurate curriculum after the Kumeyaay culture and history. So th- this, is, this is good stuff because think about what we're taught in schools. You know, we've all gone through – if you went to elementary school here in California – you know, California history and the missions is a big part of California history. And we're kind of told one story, but the reality is something different. We're told one story about how the Spanish uh, priests essentially landed and they set up these churches up the California coast. They called it the El Camino Real. Of course, they started with the first one, the San Diego de Alcala, I think is how you say it, is the one kind of just a little bit east of what used to be Qualcomm Stadium and, you know, just right over there in Mission Valley. That was the first one. And they worked their way up, up into, you know, just north of San Francisco, I think Sonoma. And there's 21 missions. Um, and so, you know, I know my, my children, when they were in the, was either the fourth grade or the fifth grade, they had to build a replica of one of those missions. And it was teaching them history. But the history that they're told and the actual history, you know, sometimes are very much in conflict. And so that's what's really interesting about this, because we're trying to get like like they, the Angela Elliott Santos, the chairwoman of the Kumeyaay Heritage Preservation Council and the Manzanita Band of Kumeyaay Nation. She said 
this is an important name change starts the process of telling the truth. Um, so I'm I'm really excited about this. Now, now the, the San Diego Unified, they went a step further and they actually name changed a couple of other schools. And the, there's a City Heights campus that they are going to name after Reverend George Walker Smith, who was an African-American um, it was actually the first African-American elected to office in San Diego as a school board member. And then there's another interesting story about some schools, a school in Pacific Beach. And it was called Pacific Beach Middle School. And they're renaming it the Fannie and William Payne Middle School. And they have a joint use field there, too. And it turns out that William Payne, who was a graduate of Paris's Sorbonne University, was the first black teacher at Pacific Beach Middle and Sec Middle School and the second black teacher in San Diego Unified. But get this, in 1945, more than 1900 Pacific Beach residents petitioned for William Payne to be removed from the Pacific Beach Middle School because they didn't think a black teacher was needed there, considering that only two black families own property in Pacific Beach. So think about it. that was like 1945. So Gosh, what is that? That's uh, like, yeah, like 75 years ago. It's, I mean, it's really not that long ago. Um, imagine if there was an uproar to remove a teacher that was black because, you know, there's only two black families that own property. So why do we need a black teacher? I mean, the thought process, the evolution that we've gone through as a society, I think in many ways is refreshing because that's an interesting story. It's a great story to tell the students they might ask, you know, why is our school now named uh, the Fannie and William Payne Middle School? Who are they? Well, you got a really interesting story to talk about there because these, this particular teacher was discriminated against. Um, so, you know, the article goes on to talk about Sarah High and, and uh, San Diego County having 19 federally um, recognized Native American tribes here locally. And, you know, they talked about how a lot of schools are renaming, they're changing names because of the, they were named previously after Confederate soldiers, Confederate generals. And wasn't there recently like a Robert E. Lee elementary school, like in Chula Vista, that recently got a name change? So, um, and then it went on to say that there was a, Kevin Eckery, a spokesman for the Catholic Diocese of San Diego, he said, as Catholics, we are grateful for the sacrifices made by St. Unipera Sarah. Yes, because Father Unipasera was was sainted like not too long ago, and for bringing our faith to California, the mission era remains a very important part of California's history. Studying that history and learning from it is what education is all about. And I think this is a great move. Um, and he's right. I think the 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 chain of twenty one missions through California is a great learning opportunity, and I think it's it's wonderful that it's being embraced now. Some people would go so far as to say, "Well, this is just cancel culture and and this is just people you know trying to blot out history they're trying to to remove history, but that's not what they're doing. What they're doing is just making some adjustments, right? They're just changing the name of a school because as we've learned more, as we've become sort of more in touch with the real history was, we realize that a school like that doesn't need to be lifting up a name of someone, whether 
right, whether they did or maybe they looked the other way. I mean, the California missions, there was violence. There was genocide. There were wars. There was a lot of good and bad at those missions. So then you wonder, if we're going to name a school after someone, we should be careful who we name it after. And the more we evolve as a society, as a culture, you know, we can make some adjustments. That doesn't mean we're going to cancel history. Um, I would encourage people to continue studying. I think the the California Mission Project that elementary schools go, students go through is a good thing because we learn about local history. We learn about how how Europeans came to California and how that really transformed the state of California, and which then led to the gold rush and statehood and everything else. That's an important part of history. And the way we learn um, and we become better is that we learn from history and we don't make the same mistakes. So, I mean, I like this. Now, cancel culture is a, obviously a much broader topic, and I'll probably get to that in another podcast because – there's a lot of tentacles to the topic of cancel culture because it's really sort of a cultural boycotting, which isn't exactly what this is. To me, this is just making – I mean this is internally the school district and the students themselves deciding that they wanted to make an adjustment to their name based on their current knowledge and their current sensibilities that exist now in the 21st century. You know, This isn't censorship. This isn't – oppression of self-expression, which certain categories of cancel culture are that, <laughs> but not this. Um, but it's, you know, it's just like the Confederate soldier controversy. I mean, at first I objected to that. I thought, why are they tearing them down? Why tear down these these um, statues, even if they're of a Confederate soldier? You know, we could learn from that. But it makes sense to me that, you know, you can still have a statue of a Confederate general, um, but just don't put them like right in the center of the public square in an exalted position where they are celebrated. I mean, just move them to a museum, you know, or in an appropriate place (laughs) where they can be um, represented and the history is still recognized and we still learn from it, but it's within the proper context. Um, I think some of the cities, particularly in the southern part of the United States, you know they're they're still they're still living the Confederacy. Now, besides the fact that the Confederacy was an oppression, a violation of our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which, by the way, is our is our um, grander theme, our aspirational message of this podcast: life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The Confederacy was all about oppressing that. You know which, you know, oppressing those rights that are clearly outlined in the Declaration of Independence. But on top of it, Confederacy lost. Um, So they don't, I mean, they need to be placed in the proper context, not at the center of a public square. But I know I found this topic with Sarah High School really interesting for a number of personal reasons. I mean, besides all the things I've talked about, that I think it's an appropriate conversation. But I was I told you I was born in San Francisco and I was raised on the peninsula up in the San Francisco Bay Area. I was raised in a city called Burlingame. And there was a, there's a Sarah High School there, even today, Unipra Sarah High School. It's in San Mateo. And it's an all-boys Catholic school. And it's actually the school that where um, Tom Brady went to school, you know, the quarterback for the Super Bowl champ, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. It's Sarah High School in San Mateo is where Barry Bonds went to school. It's where um, Lynn Swan, remember him, the 
the former wide receiver of the Pittsburgh Steelers, a Hall of Famer from the 70s and early 80s. He went to school there. Um, so, you know, I've often thought about that. And even up in the Bay Area, Father Yunipra Serra is a celebrated figure. There's, if you ever get up there, like around in the San Mateo, Burlingame area along the 280 freeway, there's this huge statue of Father Yunipra Serra, and he's kind of kneeling and pointing, and he's pointing in the direction of the Crystal Springs Reservoir, you know, and I think it's all about them making discovery and, and coming to the Californias and, and and establishing, you know, a settlement here. But a lot of people have done fun things with that statue. I think Stanford, um, you know, Stanford University, they've they've put like a football underneath his pointed finger, like he's holding a, a, a place kick, you know, for a field goal. It's been a lot of clever things, but I've always I've always been raised around this culture of Father Juniper Sarah because I went to a Catholic school from first to eighth grade, and um, and then many of my classmates went to Sarah High School in San Mateo. I ended up going to a public high school, and I'm really happy I did. I got to have both. You know, I, I had the private school experience and the public school experience, and that was great. It was a good part of my learning experience, um, but. You know, in my hometown, the main road was the El Camino Real, you know, which is the main road that connects all the missions. So this message has always been hammered in my head. And I always thought of Father Yunipro Serra as this, you know, just like really a priest, a religious figure, you know, that would be non-threatening, you know, because after all, he's just in a robe. He's he's like the swinging friar, you know, on the Padres logo. That's what you think of, right? That's what you're kind of taught. But one of the things that I did recently, and I've talked about this in other podcasts, is I set up like a, my own little personal project, and I'm working on visiting every single one of the California missions. And it's a great, great project. It's an excuse for road trips. It's an excuse to go on an adventure. And I've visited about half of them so far. Um, I think all of them south of, well, there's one up in San Miguel Archangel, which is just north of Paso Robles. I've been to that one and everyone south except for one, which is the one in Solvang. I still have to go visit all the ones north, but I've been to one of them in, in Northern California. I've been to San Rafael. So I've got to, I think I've got maybe 11 out of the 21 I visited. That is a great exercise. If, you know, a friend of mine, he and his wife did that. And I just thought it was a really neat idea. And, you know, if you're a history buff or if you're just looking to do something different or you're just looking to get out of the house, it's a wonderful exercise. And and I was really plugging away at that in 2017, 2018, 2019. And then COVID put a screeching halt to that project because, you know, all the churches are closed. All of the tours are closed. You can't go to these places. But if you do get a chance, once COVID opens up, I can't encourage it enough. I mean, you you go and you visit and you you get to walk the grounds of the mission and you get to see that it's not only a religious site because, you know, there's a chapel and there is housing there for the, for the priests and there's a cemetery, but it's also a military site. And you'll see cannons and, and other artifacts left over by soldiers because at least one soldier was stationed at every one of these missions. So when these missions were established, it wasn't just in the name of, of spreading the word of God, although that was part of it. It was also an effort for, this, you know, for the Spaniards, for Sp Spain to lay claim, to plant a flag in California, and they wanted to have military there to establish their dominance. And so 
as you go through and you learn more of the history and you go through these tours and some of these tours are are self-guided where you just get like a little pamphlet and you kind of walk from station five to station six to station seven and you read a little bit and learn. Some of these um, actually, some of these missions have docents that will, is that the right word, docent? They're like a tour guide that are very well educated and they can answer your questions and they do wonderful jobs at these places. So um, you learn a lot about history. You see like the artifacts, you see not just the religious artifacts like the robes that the priests wore and the and some of the books and that were used, but you also see some of the tools they use, you know, to begin doing agriculture in California. You see the process they went through to do things like making soap. And, you know, they're basically starting a civilization from scratch, at least a, a civilization from a European perspective. And it's just amazing. Um, and you learn that, yeah, there were wars. I mean, you can imagine that the locals, the indigenous tribes saw these Spaniards, in many cases, heavily armed as a threat. They saw them as a threat. So sometimes there was, there was conflict. There was a war at the one here in San Diego. Um, and I think the mission here at San Diego, if I recall, I think it was burnt down in one of those wars and they had to rebuild it. But then, of course, you know, there was disease, like one of the objections in the article I read, where these Europeans came over and they carried with them diseases that they had already built up immunity. <laughs> it's kind of topical now with COVID. But the 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 natives didn't have that immunity. And so, I, and again, my understanding is, is that I think that more natives died as a result of the spread of disease than necessarily at the point of a gun. Um, so, and, and, and what's interesting is, is that it's not like they came here intentionally to spread disease. It was just an unfortunate outcome of it. But there still were people that were killed and there were obviously a lot of locals that became baptized in the, the Catholic, you know, the Christian faith, but specifically as Catholics. I would imagine some of them decided it was in their best interest. You know, if you, if you can't beat them, join them. You know, they, they figured maybe if they were baptized and follow the Christian faith, that they would be protected. Um, I'm sure some of them use that rationale. But then, you know, maybe some others were legitimately converted, you know, legitimately evangelized and took in the word of God. But it's just a fascinating topic. And it's a great learning experience if you have a chance to go visit all of these um, all of these missions. Um, so I, I just thought it was great. And, and even as you go through it, you know, a lot of these missions, the, the tour is all given right from the perspective of the people that run the mission. So it's being given by the perspective of people that run the church. So they're going to definitely have their own sort of positive spin on things, but still they will recognize facts. Some will do better jobs than others talking about not just the good, but also the bad and the ugly. Um, but I remember, gosh, it was in 2018, my daughter had graduated from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. We were up there for a dinner and one of our family friends was there and his wife caught wind of me talking about this California missions project that I'm on. And boy, it really kind of pricked up her ears and, and, and she just really wanted to make sure that I understood that there was um, that there was genocide, that there was violence, that there was slavery in some cases, and I said, "Yeah, yeah, I'm learning that. I didn't realize it at first. I didn't understand that at first, 
especially as I went through Catholic school and, you know, I was surrounded by a lot of references to Father Yanipura Serra. But there is a lot of good, bad, and ugly on this. And he was the leader of the whole thing, right? Um, he was the, the point man, the face of this whole process. And so, so anyways, um, uh, Sarah High is changing their name. Dana, I don't know if you're still on the live stream, but what do you think? I mean, you're, a, you're an alumni of Sarah High in San Diego, and now they're changing their name to become the Canyon Hills Rattlers. I mean, how do you feel about that? as an alumni of the school. Um, and, how, how, and again, I put this out to the audience. This is a live stream, so I'm always interested in your thoughts and comments. So by all means, please share. Um, of course, this gives rise to talking about what other schools should change their name or what other entities should change their name. And, you know, sometimes there's, you know, politically correct reasons or some might say cancel culture reasons. But other times, some names are just really either don't make sense or just kind of boring. Dana chimes in. She says, I don't like it. She doesn't like the name change. Well, you know, if that's your, if that, if you're an alum of that school and they took away the name, I can understand why you might not like it because it feels like it's erasing the school that you went to. I understand that perspective. Um, change is difficult too, you know? So, um, but it's part of this evolution. Now, now here, you know, I, I live in Poway, right? I often talk about Poway Unified School District. And when we first moved to Poway, we lived in kind of the southeastern corner of town. And our children went to Garden Road Elementary School. So if you've been in Poway, you've heard of that. But I always thought, man, what a, what a boring name for a school. I mean, Garden Road Elementary School. It's a school named after the street that it's on. So I, I guess that's better than the way schools are named in New York City, like, you know, PS 123. Um, I always thought, you know, come on, Poway Unified, you could have done better. But that's probably goes back. It was probably named a long, long, long time ago. And they probably stuck with the name. Another one here locally in the, in the Poway Unified area is the Design 39 campus. And maybe you've heard of this. It's up in the 4S Ranch area. It's, it's one of maybe the newest campus, I think. And they're doing all kinds of innovative things there, which I think is great. I mean, they're, they're doing a lot of creative things, not only with their curriculum, but the way their classrooms are set up. And it's, and it's not just K through five. It's not just the middle school, but it's both. It's actually K through eight. But still, like number design 39, you use 39 because it was the 39th school in the school district. I still th and design, yeah, I get it because it's they're trying to be innovative and they got some cool architecture and design to the classroom. But I always thought, yeah, you could still do better. <laughs> it's still a boring name. Um, Dana chimes in and says, "I didn't go to elementary school in California, so I had no idea of the history. But I struggle with is changing the name, but still honoring the religion. That makes no sense to me." Well, yeah, well. First of all, I agree. I, I think it is odd for a public school to be named after a religious figure. Like I get it. Like if you're a, if you're a Catholic school and it's named after a Catholic saint, that makes sense. But we generally like to think of a separation of church and state. Um, now, granted, I don't always agree with that. I think, in my opinion, religion should be taught in public schools. Now, before you go, oh, my God, how could you say that? I think in order to study history, 
American history, California history, you have to study religion because it's so interwoven. Um, you can't learn about about history in a way certain religions like the Jews throughout their history have always been oppressed, always been persecuted. But you, you need to understand why. And you have to understand what makes these religions different. Why do they believe in certain things? And what role do they play in culture? And how did their religious practices have an impact on history and impact on society? I think teaching history in public, excuse me, teaching religion in public schools is critical. Not evangelizing the message, but teaching the historical, factual elements of what that religion is all about. Now, frankly, I think if we did more than that, if we did more teaching about religion in schools, then I think we would see less of like this Poway Chabad shooting where you get some crazy person that has this irrational hatred of Jews, of the Jewish people. I mean, that's insane. I mean, it's obviously that that person got a lot of bad information and wasn't properly educated. Um, and as an aside, I, I just saw a post on Facebook, Mayor Steve Voss here in Poway, he's going to be speaking. And I talked about this on a previous podcast. He's going to be speaking at a global mayor's conference, and he's going to be talking about that incident and the notion of anti-Semitism. And I think it's great. I'm glad he is. And I think preaching the message of anti-Semitism and is a great message um, to, to share. And I think it's an important message to share specifically for the mayor of Poway because of what we went through with the Chabad shooting and what also we, um, you know, there have been other issues of racial, you know, racism, um, of other hate crimes. There's a, there was another one here in Poway that affected the Jewish people where swastikas were painted on someone's house because they had Hanukkah lights and up. You know, we need to be teaching more about this rather than having some irrational fear or irrational hatred of people and their religion, we need to understand what their religion is and why they believe what they believe and why they have certain cultural practices. And I think if we can understand it, then it breaks down the fear. And we might say, you know, I don't believe, maybe I, you don't believe it, or maybe you don't want to practice and live your life that way, but at least you understand it and you understand why they do what they do. And I think that will go a long way to, you know, breaking down these walls and really, you know, kind of more better weaving the fabric of society together rather than trying to separate us, which is often what a lot of fear mongers do. Um, on the, on the podcast, more comments from Dana. She says, I agree with all of that, but the ancestors of the indigenous people that were slaughtered and enslaved are mostly still Catholic. That's what I don't understand. Yeah. You know, when it comes to religion, there's a lot of people do things in the name of religion for what seem like very irrational reasons. Religion, after all, is is based on faith. Religion is based on not necessarily science. It's not based on facts. I mean, the whole notion of faith is is believing in something without evidence. So people will people will have beliefs or have certain behaviors that seem illogical, irrational to people that don't share that faith. Now, sometimes people will go to the extreme and then turn that into violence. Of course, the more we learn, 
the better off we're going to be. And still, there'll be certain cases like this, Dane, I agree with you, where they people will still fail to understand why. And yeah, there are definitely, you know, Native Americans, you know, indigenous people that are still Catholic. Interesting, you know. Um, It's interesting, too, that some people will be raised. I mean, it's one thing to go from Catholic to Presbyterian. You know, you're still Christian. But it is interesting when people will switch religions, in this case, maybe from a native religion to Catholicism. But then there are other people that will switch from Judaism to Christianity, mostly because they marry into that religion and the the parents, the mom and dad decide to be aligned on one religion so they can raise their child up in that religion. It's interesting the process that people go through on that. And sometimes things don't always make sense to a person that's outside of that decision making. Um, Matthew Brannigan on the live stream says, yes, religious education is important, but obviously done with as much impartiality as possible. No question. 100% agree. Um, when re- when If religion is taught in public schools, it has to be taught as objectively as possible and as even-handedly as possible, all with the intent of understanding why people believe in what they believe in and also understanding the context that their religion has played in the course of history. Um, we, you know, the, the missions are a great example. When you bring... When you bring priests that are spreading the word, working on a mission project of themselves to convert people into Christianity, that's a big part of California history. It's a big part of um, some of the messaging you hear about not just the people that came to California, but even some of the early settlers in, in America. You know, a lot of it's driven by religion. And we could go down, talk about the Spanish Inquisition. I mean, the, the laundry list is, is a mile long of the way religion has played a big role in human history. And I think it's important that we learn that. So um, I do support that they switch their name, um, that the school made the choice themselves rather than, you know, the people voting and the mob demanding it. The school made their own decision. There's a there's another school here in Poway, um, and it's a Christian school, a Catholic school, St. Michael's. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think their mascot are the Crusaders. That's an interesting choice. I mean, you know, some time ago, people thought of the Crusaders as these righteous Christians that went, you know, what was it, probably around— 800 AD up through, I don't know, what, 1200 AD, sometime there in the Middle Ages. And they went and tried to reclaim Jerusalem for the Christian faith. And that involved the um, Knights Templar and a lot of really interesting history. But a lot of that was religious war. A lot of that was leading to bloodshed of innocent people who, by the way, Muslims believe in the same God that the Christians believe in. You know, Allah and Yahweh are are the same person or the same entity. Um, They just have different perspectives on it, different religious practices, but yet they went to war. So it's interesting that some schools choose to remain crusaders, um, even in today's world. But then there's a lot of other, I mean, we can kind of get off a little bit from religion. And look here in Poway Unified, um, Mount Carmel, the high school there, uh, they're called the Sun Devils. And you might think, oh, Sun Devils, no big deal. Arizona State is the Sun Devils, right? Well, the baseball team in Tampa used to be called the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. And they changed their name and they became the Tampa Bay Rays. 
Now, you might say, oh, that's because there's a bunch of religious people, a bunch of Christians in Florida. Now, I'm sure that was part of it. But it is interesting, you know, that they're the devil, um, the sun devils at Mount Carmel. It's almost like Duke University. They're the blue devils. You know, it's interesting how you want a lot of times they want mascots that are sort of, you know, tough guys, you know, these badass warriors that are going to, you know, pounce on the on the other team on the football field or on the lacrosse field or whatever sport we're talking about. Um, but I often wonder how some names, you know, there's pressure to change, but other names you would think there'd be pressure, but there is, there is none. Then there are other names that are interesting. Like I went to UC San Diego over in La Jolla and our mascot were the Tritons. I mean, for the life of us, we used to like, what is a Triton? You know, and we'd say, was that a trident? Isn't that the staff, you know, with the three prongs that, that, um, what was the, what was the name of the God of the sea? Um, Neptune. Isn't that the, the, the staff that Neptune carried? And yeah, that was a trident, but we were a triton, which I think was some relative of Neptune, another god of the sea. And interestingly, when I was at UCSD in the 80s, there was a big movement by the students to change the mascot to the koalas. Um, because we had a ton of eucalyptus trees at, at UCSD, there was also a student-run newspaper, kind of a, a humor satire newspaper that was wonderful. It was really well done. And it was called The Koala. Um, and they started this movement. And actually, the students voted to change the name. But of course, that has no juice. The administration has to decide. And they said no. And the athletic department said, hell no, <laughs> we're not going to be koalas. Um, but I wish they did, you know, kind of be on par with UC Santa Cruz since they're the banana slugs. Um, but then, you know, San Diego State, you know, they're the Aztecs. They've gotten some heat to change their name. And that kind of comes and goes um, over the last 10 or 20 years. You know, sometimes there'll be a groundswell of of effort to change the name. And I know they, they took away Monty Montezuma as the mascot um, to try to soften the 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 name the mascot the you know the 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 cultural you know the cultural impact of, you know maybe even the the killings of the aztecs um you know i i don't know i don't know if aztec who is it offensive to i think that's the first question um and we should probably ask them <laughs> so I don't know, but that's one that often gets heat. And and then even like USD, you kind of wonder, University of San Diego, they're the Toreros, right? I had to look it up. I used to think, what, what's a Torero? It's a bullfighter, right? You know, the, and the bullfighter is the one that sticks the sword into the bull, which people like animal rights activists would be furious. But I learned that a Torero isn't necessarily a bullfighter. It's just any one of a number of people that are in the bullfighting ring. But a, a matador is a type of Torero. Interesting. I learned that. Um, but just a lot of interesting cases. And, and then when is it ever going to get, you know, here I'm Irish. This is March, right? We unofficially call it Irish History Month. Um, but, you know, Notre Dame, the fighting Irish and the mascot is this, you know, this little leprechaun with red hair with his dukes up. You know, he's ready to get in a fight. Um, I'm wondering if that's ever going to get any heat. And even the Boston Celtics. I wonder if they would ever get any heat for their name. But it's an interesting topic. I've talked about this before. I mean, there's there's other sports teams like the Utah Jazz. I mean, that makes no sense. They used to be the New Orleans Jazz, and then they moved to Utah, and they kept the name. New Orleans Jazz makes sense. Utah Jazz, not so much. The L.A. Lakers, that's a dumb name. That doesn't make any sense. How many lakes are in L.A.? Very few. But they used to be the Minneapolis Lakers in Minnesota, the land of 10,000 lakes. It makes sense there. They moved to L.A. 
And that was a dumb name. Like even the Dodgers, too. That made sense when they were in Brooklyn, you know, because the, the fans would have to dodge the streetcars to get to the ballpark. That's why they're the Dodgers. They came to L.A. They kept the name. You know, maybe they kept it for branding reasons, licensing reasons. Maybe it made good money for them. But some of the names just don't make sense. And then some names are just kind of dumb, like the Cleveland Browns. You know, uh, Now, it's named after Paul Brown. They're one of their first coaches, really kind of, is it the founder of the team, perhaps? And yeah, he's a Hall of Fame coach. But it's interesting that they're named after a person rather than named after a entity, another kind of entity. It's just odd. And I remember talking with my son. I go, do you know who the Cleveland Browns are named after? He had no idea. He just assumed it was a color. Um, So there's just a lot of names that I I think are interesting. And then even like corporate names, corporations change their name too. So that's why when people get really tweaked, like why is, all due respect, Dana, but why is this high school changing their name? This is crazy. This is outrageous. But, you know, businesses change their name. And it's not that big of a deal. Like one of the ones that I remember happened recently is remember the uh, World Wrestling Federation, the WWF, you know, that was um, Hulk Hogan and, you know, all the wrestlers that we saw on TV. There was another organization, I think called the, what was it? The World, not the World Wrestling Federation, but it was like the World Wide Federation or something like that. But they were more of an environmentalist group. And they were also WWF, and they sued. And so the the wrestling group changed their name to World Wrestling Enterprise or Enterprises. So now they're WWE. But then there's other cases like um, products are their changing name, like Aunt Jemima. We that, that was recent news. Um, I think Eskimo Pies. They may have changed their name. And um, this is one I didn't realize. I was because I was looking this up as I prepared for the podcast. Procter and Gamble, you know, they have a cleaning product called Spick and Span, which, you know, depending on the way you read that, could be considered racist, or it just could be considered being clean. But they had a mascot, and his his reference, his name was um, Senor Sleepy, you know, making reference to a person that was Hispanic, which clearly, when you link that with Spick and Span, that's racist. But they took that away, and then. Um, they, they, they got rid of the, the mascot, but I think they're still spick and span. Uh, Matthew Brannigan chimes in, Uncle Ben's rice will just become Ben's soon. Yeah, you know, again, if this, if the, if the, if the own, if your, if their own organization is being reflective and asking themselves, does our name make sense? Does our name do us more harm than good? Are we, reflecting the kind of values that we think are aligned with our own corporation's values. And if they decide there's a conflict, then yeah, make a change. It's not a big deal. And so the San Diego Unified has done the same thing. The Washington Redskins, thank God, finally have decided to change their name. I know the last season they went as the Washington football team, and I think they're going to go at least another year with that. The Cleveland Indians said they're going to change their name. That one isn't quite as offensive as Redskins, but you know, it's kind of up there. Then you kind of wonder what's going to happen. Are the Chiefs, the Kansas City Chiefs, the Atlanta Braves? And then, you know, is it going to is it going to turn, you know, the Aztecs is one step in that direction as well. Will they ever get impacted? And then there's a lot of companies that change their names for a lot of other reasons. Um, you know, Mike Ryan was a guest here on the podcast a couple of times. And he's a big Datsun 240Z guy. He's really into those cars. Remember, Dotson changed their name to Nissan. Um, and, and there's, you know, even like, um, <laughs> this is funny. Did you know the original name of Google was called Backrub? 
<laughs> back rub. And apparently it was because, you know, when they were building this index of the World Wide Web, they were trying to find all these sort of backlinks that they thought were part of how this whole web is interconnected. And they, they were called Backrub. I don't know for how long, but um, that name has a couple of interesting connotations, especially in the Me Too movement. Um, this is another one that was cool. Yahoo used to be called Jerry's Guide to the World Wide Web. <laughs> so it's like Craigslist or something, you know, just named after a guy named Jerry. Jerry's Guide to the World Wide Web is now Yahoo. Um, and, you know, Nike used to be called Blue Ribbon Sports. I mean, so it's interesting that a lot of these names are changed. Now, Dana, I know that you're an alum of Sarah High School here in San Diego, and I get it why you might not like the name change. From my perspective, I, I don't really have a problem with it. And frankly, I think it's probably a good thing. Um, this isn't the most important issue in, in our society, in our culture that we need to solve. Um, but, you know, if the school district and especially the students and want to make that change, then why not? Um, why not make that change? Now, apparently the school is going through a kind of a reconstruction already, so they don't have to do a ton of rebranding. I think the, the main cost is really going to change the uniforms for the schools. But I was going to go through a list of a lot of the other high schools in, in San Diego, but I couldn't find a comprehensive list that had the school name and the mascot name side by side for every high school in the county. But are there others, do you think, that should change their name? I think, what's the Christian school in, yeah, Santa Fe Christian. I think they're also called the Crusaders, I think. I'm not positive. That's the out in Solana Beach. Because um, you'll see Crusaders often with Christian schools, which, again, I think is a name that I'm surprised hasn't come under fire. So all good stuff. You know, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, uh, but I, I kind of wanted to get into it. Now, um, if you're loving what we're doing here on this podcast, you know, we do this every Monday, Wednesday and Friday at 2 p.m. Um, and I love getting feedback from the audience. And thank you, Dana and, and Matthew, for chiming in. Uh, Dana goes on to say, I know it seems ridiculous that it bothers me, but at least they should have kept the brown and gold. Well, well, yeah, the brown and gold is, you know, brown goes with the, the Franciscan friars, you know, the outfits that they wore. Um, brown and gold, man, you know, bring back the brown. Aren't you happy the Padres brought back the brown and gold? Man, their new uniforms look so good. I know they're only a year old, but I, I can't wait for baseball season to start. I'm still listening to Padre games on the radio, watching some of the spring training games. But yeah, you, it would have been nice to have some connection to the old name, maybe for alumni, but they may have just said, you know what, we're going to do clean state. We're going to rebrand. Um, I don't know. Do you know what colors they're embracing as rattlers? I mean, what color is a rattlesnake? Well, the rattlesnake has brown and gold in it, right? Um, so you think that would work? And Dana says, yeah, I love the brown and gold. Yeah, probably for the Padres. That's my, imagine what your comment's about. So, you know, we... I just want to give you a big shout out and thank you. Everyone's watching and listening and really encourage you to, to share the love, you know, share these episodes with friends, you know, like, and follow. If you like this episode, click on the like button. I see a number of people already have, or subscribe to my YouTube channel. That'd be great. I would appreciate that. Now I do have one more topic I want to get into. Oh, Dana says they're, they're red and black now. So the, again, what was it? The Canyon, the Canyon Hills Rattlers, they're red and black. So they went from pottery colors to Aztec colors. 
you know, red and black is still a good color combination. I like that. Um, but I want to, I, I have some time left. I mean, it's like, I don't know, we're 47 minutes in. I usually like to keep these around an hour. And I'm about to open up a can of worms and talk about trickle down. And this is a conversation that Dana and I and another friend of ours, Larry, were having online. And I want to get into this a little bit. I, and granted, this should be a whole podcast, and I don't want to turn this into a two-hour event. But um, I do want to kind of get into this because right now we're hearing so much about income inequality and wealth inequality and there's legitimate problems I and mean, there's a legitimate issues in our society where um, wealth is captured at the top and protected. And at the bottom, there's a lot of cases where people are trapped in poverty for a long list of reasons. And we can go through those. Um, but a lot of times people will always point to, oh, tax cuts for the rich. And this is a terrible policy and it's not fair and they're not paying their fair share. And tax cuts for the rich are the big problem in society. And I get it. I understand that there's a lot of frustration, right? There's a lot of frustration, especially now with COVID. There's a lot of people out of work. Oh, my God. Is it hailing right now? It is. The sun is out and it's hailing. I can see it through the window. Like the, the hail is bouncing off of our walkway. And this is something. Um, but anyways, uh, you know, a lot of people get upset, you know, and, and it's easy to point the finger and say, well, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And it's because of tax cuts and these damn tax cuts, like even Trump cut taxes. And yeah, Trump did cut taxes. Uh, he mostly cut taxes on corporations, not on people. You know, usually the, the trickle down is mostly pointed to tax cuts on people, on rich people, rather than corporations. And that's what Reagan did. That's what George W. Bush did. They also lowered corporate taxes too. But Trump primarily cut corporate taxes. Again, I'm no Trump fan. I'm not defending Trump. Don't misread me. But um, it's it, what part of our conversation, we were talking about corporate taxes. And a lot of times people are really upset that corporations got tax cuts. Like, how come they're getting tax cuts? What's going on? And it's easy, I think, to point the finger at corporations, you know, because they're like some other entity, right? Tax them, not us. But who pays for corporate taxes? I mean, really, who pays? The corporation is just a legal entity. The corporation doesn't really pay. The building doesn't pay. Um, the corporate... Um, the incorporation documents, the paper doesn't pay. People pay. Who pays? Well, the shareholders will pay for sure if corporate taxes, that, that's who pays them. But where does the shareholders get their money? They get them from customers. So when corporate taxes go up, who does it affect? It affects customers because people like you and me are seeing essentially our cost of living increase because of it. And then who else indirectly pays for corporate uh, taxes? Our employees, because there's less money to go around in that corporation that could be spent on salaries. So I've always been a big proponent that corporate taxes should be zero <laughs> for every one of them. Um, and I think that would benefit, I mean, it would obviously benefit shareholders, but it would benefit everyone up and down the line. And then we can more properly focus tax code where it should be is on people because people are the ones that pay. But um, we, we, were, we were talking about a lot of things. Um, 
And I encourage your thoughts on this because it's common. People will say, well, trickle down doesn't work and trickle down. It, it didn't trickle down. You know, the rich got richer, the poor got poor. And, um, you, you know, it, and we ended up with a financial crisis in 2008. And that must have come from the tax cuts, right? It must have come from um, George W. Bush's tax cuts in 01 and 03, or it came from Reagan's tax cuts in the early 80s. You know, before he started raising them again, by the way, because, um, yeah, Reagan did increase taxes after he cut them. And, you know, Trump, by the way, did that too. Trump increased taxes. Um, for many of us in California, you know, we saw our state and local tax deductions limited, which effectively increased our taxes. And then Trump, of course, pushed this big trade war with China, which meant that tariffs went up, which meant that imported goods saw their prices go up. And tariffs, you know, you think of it, oh, that's a tax on the Chinese, but it's not. It's a tax on the American people. Trump increased taxes on the American people in the form of tariffs. So he has a mixed record too. Um, But I'm interested in your thoughts on trickle-down. Now, the the term trickle-down, where does that come from? It, the 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 Republicans never called it trickle down. I mean, ironically, the the guy that put forward this concept was what was the name? Art was it Arthur Laffer, which is just a and that's a tough name. He called laugh last name Laffer, and then especially trying to propose what he thought was a really serious economic idea that the more you increase taxes, you know, you begin to hit a point where there is less incentive to earn money and then people will change their behavior. And if you increase this tax too much, then revenue could actually decline. Um, but then it was transformed into this idea of what's called trickle down. Um, Pat Johnson on the live stream says, John, really no taxes for corporations? Yeah, I agree. No taxes for corporations. That may be okay if they shared that savings with all employees and prices dropped, but no, that won't happen. Well, Are you sure? Um, Because if companies have more cash available, they could invest in their own company. We're seeing companies do that. They're investing back into their own company. Um, But even even if, let's just say, this is what really goes down to what trickle down really means. Even if those greedy a-hole shareholders um, didn't share their tax cuts, like if you make corporate taxes 0%, and, and Pat goes, yeah, I'm sure they'll, they won't share those savings. Well, even think this through because it's, it, it's many layers. It has the same cascades. If tax, uh, taxes on American companies were 0%, then first of all, we wouldn't have tariffs, right? Tariffs are a tax on corporations. Tar- tariffs, by the way, are a tax that's passed on to the consumer in the form of higher prices as every corporate tax is. But let's just say that those greedy a-hole shareholders decided that they weren't going to share those tax cuts with anyone. They weren't going to give their employees higher wages, and they weren't going to lower the prices, those greedy a-holes. Well, I don't think that's going to happen in all cases, but it might happen in some. Well, what do those people do with their money? Are they just going to take those cash savings and dig a hole in their backyard and put it there? I mean, what do they do with their money? Well, they use their money. Rich people don't let their money sit idle. Rich money are going to rich people are going to have their money work for them. They're going to find ways to they're going to spend some of it. And you might argue, well, they're going to spend so little because they're just so amazingly rich. They're not going to spend much. But you know what? 
many of them are because who owns shares in corporations? Well, people like you and me that have a 401k or have a pension that's invested in these. And then when we retire, we begin to withdraw from our, our accounts and the dividends, you know, which are the profits from those companies begins to flow to regular people, not just the uber rich. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, middle class, upper middle class people that also own stock in various cases. But still, what do people do with their tax savings? What do people do with their money? Well, they really only do one of four things with their money. They're either going to spend it, which, again, you may argue they only can have so many houses and so many yachts. But they're also going to invest it because they want their money to work for them. And that's why we see money being invested in American companies. We see it invested in real estate. We see money invested in bonds that are used to build infrastructure in um, in in uh, throughout society to build roads and highways and schools. People invest money, especially in municipal bonds where they're not taxable. So there's an incentive to put that money there. People Rich people will invest their money because they don't want to see it sit idle because inflation keeps going up. They need a hedge against inflation. They need to invest it so it keeps accruing and gaining value. But they don't just spend and invest. They also will they will save their money. And you'll think, oh, yeah, well, they save the money. They're hoarding their money. Those those a-holes, they're hoarding their money. Well, if they took their money and dug a hole in their backyard and buried it there, then, yeah, they're hoarding their money. They're holding it for themselves and no one else can touch it. But if they put it in a bank and it's saved, well, what does that bank do? I mean, first of all, the person depositing the money, they're going to expect to make some interest on that, in, on that deposit, right? Now, granted, interest rates are insane low right now, but they're still going to expect something in the form of an a, um, interest on that deposit. So how is that bank going to make money to pay for that interest? Well, they're going to loan the money out. They're going to loan the money out to people to, for mortgages to buy homes. They're going to loan money out to people to buy cars. They're going to loan money out to homeowners to do a home equity line so they can take equity out of their house. And then they're going to do a kitchen remodel or a bathroom remodel or put an addition on their home or put on a new roof. Every one of those cases, the money cascades through the, the economy. When they buy a home... They use that loan for a mortgage. Well, where does the cash go? Then suddenly the cap money is going to the, the home seller. And that seller then has that money in their hand and they buy and they, they spend, they donate, they invest and they save. Um, in cases where a person is doing a home equity line and they pull money out, you know, the rich guy puts the money in the bank to save it. The and Dana goes on, have you ever seen papers? So you're probably referring to the Panama Papers. And yeah, I, I, I know that story. And yeah, there's a lot of people that have put their money offshore because they want to avoid taxation. Totally understand. Now, not all of the rich people's money is offshore. So a, a significant amount is. But even there, that money is, <laughs> is, is in banks and that bank is paying interest and that bank is loaning that money out, and it's still circulating through the economy. But unfortunately, it's circulating through economies outside of the United States. But it's there in the first place because the tax rates in America are so high. So if the taxes were lowered, then it would encourage that money to come back onshore, and that would be a good thing. But 
you know, rich people are, are rich largely because they're smart and they know how to move their money around and maximize it. And they're going to, money goes where it's most welcome. So yeah, some money goes offshore. I get that. But a huge amount of money is being invested in America. I mean, Warren Buffett has huge investments in United States companies. I mean, we can go down the list of just insane amounts of money that are invested in the United States already, not counting the money that's offshore. Imagine if that offshore money came back to America. What would it do for our economy? It'd be unbelievable. Now, imagine if a rich guy puts his money in the bank, earn an interest. That bank then loans that money out in the form of a home equity line to do a kitchen remodel. Well, that kitchen remodel, that homeowner is going to hire a contractor, They're gonna, you know, which is going to create jobs. And then they're going to buy tile flooring and they're going to buy new appliances and new countertops and cabinets. And that is purchased from suppliers who sell those products and from craftsmen who make those cabinets and who make uh, the, those countertops. The money will continue to cascade. So- and then in other cases, the money, they'll put their money in a bank and they'll save it. They'll earn interest on it. And the bank will loan that money out to businesses. And you know, businesses will borrow the money to buy equipment. They'll lease equipment and they'll, buy, they'll, they'll borrow money to expand their business, to lease more property, to maybe even to hire people. So the money is never hoarded. The money always cascades through the system. So remember I said, what do people do with their money? One of four things. They either spend it, and the rich people will spend it. Number two, they'll invest it, and we know rich people will invest their money. Frankly, even middle-class people should be investing their money. <laughs> um, even if their savings are modest, they need to be saving. Number three, um, they will save their money, and we know when they save it, they, they are smart about it, and they'll put it in a place where the money will work for them, and that means the money will, be, will cascade through the economy in the form of money in the bank save turns into loans, and that money you know, passes down through the, the economy. And the fourth thing that they do is they'll donate the money, and we've seen many cases of rich people, philanthropists doing that. So the argument always is, well, it's – didn't trickle down. It didn't trickle down. And we can make an, a, 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 have a discussion that it didn't trickle down enough. Okay. We can say that, yeah, there are still some people that are in difficult financial situations and some people that are trapped in poverty and, you know, jobs have been outsourced to Asia. And we can go through a lot of other cases in the economy where people are legitimately struggling. And but I think what that points out is, is that when you look at the rich getting richer and the poor getting poor, as people like to say, the rich are getting richer. No question about that. And, and they almost always will um, because they have leverage. Now, some people, some rich people will lose huge amounts of money. That happens, too. But generally speaking, the rich will always get richer. At the bottom end, um, there are people that on the bottom end that will struggle and some will struggle and tread water and some are able to break free. Um, and, and, and they're able to build wealth on their own. But there are many variables that go into this economy that determine a person's ultimate financial position. We, we've seen, you know, people will say, well, when trickle down started in 1980 under Reagan, that's what caused all these problems. Well, yeah, those tax cuts were aggressive in the Reagan era. I think 
prior to Reagan, I think the up is, the highest rate was like 70 something percent and they lowered it into the thirties, I think maybe, or was it the forties under Reagan? And then Bush lowered it even further. Um, but also in the eighties, think about all the other things that happened. We saw back then, you know, in the 1970s, there wasn't a whole lot of global trade. Now global trade has just exploded. So now there are, you know, there are companies that have been created in China, in Southeast Asia, people that were living in abject poverty. And thanks to capitalism, actually, they've risen up, uh, which is one of the most wonderful parts of the of our recent history that we rarely hear about is how many people have risen out of poverty. Um, but they've been able to do it because jobs there, labor there is a lot less expensive. So jobs have left America. That's no doubt about it. But still, what's interesting is, is the United States has more people employed, at least pre-COVID, more people employed than we ever did in our history. That's often underreported as well. Um, but still, globalization has had an impact on certain jobs. Certain people, especially in the Rust Belt, lost their job. That has a much bigger impact than a rich guy getting a tax cut. Um, then there are other cases where automation kicked in, computers really started to get their legs in the 80s and into the 90s, that automation has replaced jobs. We've seen a maturing workforce as well, where people are working longer and later in their life. So there's less turnover in a lot of corporate organizational charts and, and therefore, in some cases, less people being promoted through companies because a lot more people are working longer and later into their career. Um, so there's a lot of cases where we can point to reasonable explanations why there are challenges of, in the economy. And there's no doubt the system is rigged, rigged at the top to protect the wealth at the top, but also to trap people at the bottom. And there's a lot of traps at the bottom. But before I get to that, I want to read a couple more comments. Pat Johnson says, in a perfect utopia, you are spot on. But unfortunately, that's not what we live in today. Today's society's core values have drastically changed. And I'm sorry to say, but greed is taking over. And if corporations don't pay taxes at all, where does the government make up for those losses of tax revenue? We would get taxed more. Um, and Dana says, yes. And Pat goes on to say, you should change your plans. We might be here a while, <laughs> LOL. And then Pat says, two words, flat taxes. Well, I agree, Pat, flat. If you're going to have a tax on income, it should be flat, which means same tax level for everybody with no deductions, no loopholes, no um, no tax shelters. You can't even remove your, um, you know, your interest on your home loan. It would have to be purely flat. And if you were to do it, that's the only fair way to do it. Um, but still, it's not really totally fair because people are still paying for a ton of things that they don't want. People are still paying for a lot of things that others may find immoral, um, that they object to. Um, and, you know, we were talking earlier, and again, I'll do respect, Pat, because I know you're a veteran, but, you know, there's a tremendous amount of money that's spent on the Department of Defense um, for things that really aren't defensive, that are probably arguably more offensive. Um, and there's a lot of people that object to that, but yet, if they had to pay a flat tax, is that fair? Well, it's, it, I don't think that that's, you can really say that's fair if they have to pay for something they don't want. Um, but if, imagine if corporations had zero tax. Okay, first of all, that would might be a good reason to cut spending, <laughs> to actually balance the budget, you know, because a lot of this debt that's being accumulated 
also has a drag on the economy, a drag effect, because money is now having to be spent. A significant portion of our gross domestic product goes to paying interest on the national debt. I mean, it's insane how much is spent on that. And so imagine if we were able to lower our debt, live within our means, that would free up cash to go through different channels in the economy that would be far more productive. Um, but in my opinion, there's a ton of things government should cut spending on. I mean, I, we can go down the list. I mean, there there are, frankly, there are war efforts in the Middle East that should be cut. We can talk about the war on drugs. We could talk about, um, I mean, Bush's Medicare Part D that prevented price negotiation of medicine, Medicare Part D that prevented imports of competitive medicine into the United States, that kept prices artificially high and rigged the system for big pharma. I mean, there's a ton of things that we could be cut, and, and but we never have that conversation because when, so, when some budget gets cut, somebody is affected, and then the politician, the congressman or the senator is at risk of losing their seat. So they keep spending and giving it away and, frankly, making the situation worse. Um, but, yeah, I, I think corporations ultimately don't pay taxes. People pay taxes. Shareholders pay. The money ultimately comes from customers. That's where the revenue comes in the door that pay for the taxes. And then employees indirectly are affected by it. So, yeah, corporate taxes should be zero, in my opinion. Um, and would that mean that other people's taxes would be raised? Normally, you would think that, right? Normally, you would think that if you cut taxes for some people, you would have to raise taxes for others in order to balance it out. But we all know that Washington, D.C. doesn't work that way. Um, we all know that there is no correlation between revenue and expenses, they don't care. Um, they are going to spend whatever they spend regardless of how much money comes in the door. That's a fact. That's, that's for sure true. Um, and there's, in my opinion, uh, uh, for every dollar that they would remove from revenue from corporate taxes, let's remove $2 in spending and put together a commission to figure out how to do that. Um, I think that would be healthy. But anyways, yeah, this – we're at an hour nine. We can go a little longer on this. But as far as as trickle down, there's a lot of people that will say trickle down didn't work. And they'll point to that. They'll say there, there are people, the rich got insane richer and there's people that are homeless. There are people that are living in poverty. It didn't work. And like I said, I think there's a lot of variables to the equation that and certainly tax cuts will make the rich richer. No doubt about that. But really – it's their money. <laughs> they earn that money. It's their income. Um, and I think that's a, a moral point that I think we got to get to first. That taxation, while I understand it's necessary to make the economy run, it's still taking other people's money coercively by force. And there is an immoral angle to that whole process. Because if you don't pay, you get fined. And if you still don't pay, you go into a cage. They put you in jail. So taxes ultimately are at the point of a gun. The money that we earn should be ours to keep. Now, that means what we should be doing is figuring out ways to understand that and understand that it's immoral to increase taxes on anyone. And we should be looking for ways to lower that. And then similarly, lower spending on a lot of these corporate boondoggles, corporate bailouts. Um, we, I was talking with another friend of mine. We were talking about um, legal plunder. 
That's what a lot of these corporations have done. They have been able to rig the system. This is how money is is protected at the top. They've been able to rig the system to change the rules of the game through the regulatory code to block competition, to get bailouts, to prevent imported products or to put tariffs on products that make competition difficult, Um, to have, yeah, their company rescued off the backs of taxpayers. Happens all the time. That's how the system is rigged at the top. That's why I often call for deregulation. The minute I say deregulation, people think you're going to want to pollute the air and the water. I'm like, no, no. I want to unwind all of this rigging that protects the money at the top, that has distorted the playing field, that has set up the system so the rich people are protected, so Wall Street is bailed out while Main Street suffers and withers and dies on the vine. That's what we saw coming out of the Great Recession. And that's what we're seeing to a degree right now in this whole COVID pandemic. Big business like Amazon and Walmart and and Target and Costco and Home Depot, every one of those, they're declared essential. The government has said, you are an essential business. We will not shut you down. And then meanwhile, they shut down all the mom and pop businesses. They make life hell on restaurant owners. They shut down gymnasiums. They shut down all kinds of businesses that are our local businesses in our community, which traps them and puts them in a difficult spot. So the whole system is distorted and rigged. But tax cuts aren't the problem. It's all the other things that are the problem. Um, So I've often said, people will say, well, yeah, trickle down didn't work. But by what measure? Are they saying that by lowering taxes, it didn't increase revenue? Well, revenue went up. After Bush cut taxes in 2003, revenue for the federal government went up for four straight years. And then then the shit hit the fan with the Great Recession. Now, a lot of that is because the economy grew and it's also because the population grew and that those had more impact um, in driving revenue than the potential loss of revenue from the tax cut. So if you think trickle down didn't work in terms of producing more revenue, well, that's false. I mean, the government's producing, well, pre-COVID, producing more revenue than it ever has. Um, same with Reagan. I think in Reagan in the 80s, I think the first year after the tax cuts, revenue went down. And then every year after that, revenue kept going up. Now, eventually, he started raising taxes too. But if you, if you depending on how much you cut taxes, will have the impact. It'll vary depending on how much it impacts revenue. But to go further, people will say, Trickle down didn't work. Well, again, what are they measuring it against? Are they, if they're not measuring federal government revenue, then what are they measuring? Are they measuring the, stat, the, 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 the amount of money that's cascaded through the system and has gone to the people at the bottom? Well, I would argue that they're right. It hasn't uh, trickled. In many cases, it's been a flood. Yes, a flood. Businesses have been started all over the United States that have employed tremendous amounts of people. We're seeing that now. More people pre-COVID have been employed in America than any time in its history. So we're seeing when you let entrepreneurs be free to start businesses and to deploy their capital to start businesses and to hire people, that brings everyone up. It brings the employees, they begin to earn more, and the entrepreneur earns more. And then the the equipment and the facilities and the things that he buys helps those other companies earn more revenue so they can pay their people more. And it lifts, not all boats, but it lifts up a great deal of the economy. So 
when they say trickle down doesn't work, what do they mean? I mean, what are they measuring and what are they comparing it to? Um, I've often contended, yeah, it's a flood. I mean, that's if you look at it, that's what happened in American history in the time between the Civil War and World War One, where we saw probably the greatest amount of economic growth in our nation's history. We saw uh, the, the the rise in the standard of living of the ordinary man go up tremendously. Probably the biggest jump in the standard of living of the ordinary person in human history happened in the late 1800s and early 1900s, a time when there was no federal tax, federal income tax. The federal income tax happened in 19, I think, 13. Um, But we saw then innovation, railroads, um, cars were invented, airplanes were invented, the telephone was invented. We saw a flourishing of philanthropy. Universities were created, foundations were created to help the poor. The people for the ethical treatment of animals started during that time. We saw schools begin to blossom. Uh, schools, yeah, they're run by the government, but those would never have been possible if there wasn't more money being created during that system. Money being created that allowed there to be enough wealth to create the schools in the first place. So when taxes were not just low, when they were non-existent, that's how America went from being a kind of a agricultural sort of mercantile um, economy to the greatest economy on the planet. And then look at what happened um, in China. Um, In China, they began to loosen up their economy. They began to free up their economy. They began to embrace, embrace just a little bit of free market capitalism. And boom, the standard of living in China went up as well. So I think the more we embrace lowering taxes and encouraging the business and environment to thrive, the better off we're going to be. Um, And what else? There's a couple other things I wanted to talk about on this. But when you look at, this is another part of our discussion, and I'm going to go just a wee bit further. We were talking about the 2008 Great Recession, which obviously was a complete cluster, a total implosion. And the question was, What caused that? And some people thought the Bush tax cuts caused that. Um, But even in my discussion earlier today, you know, people were saying, well, the Reagan tax cuts trickle down is what caused the Great Recession. That's not true at all. (laughs) Um, The Great Recession was caused because of government policy. The Great Recession, what it really was, was the, was the, the mortgage bubble, the housing bubble, right? Housing It turned into what Alan Greenspan called it, irrational exuberance. Um, People were inflating that bubble. That bubble for the real estate market kept growing and growing and growing. And if you've ever seen that movie, The Big Short, people were were acting irrationally. There was a – I remember in The Big Short, they were interviewing a a young woman who was – she was a stripper in a nightclub. She owned five houses in Florida. I mean, it was people making crazy, irrational decisions. And some people say, that's because of deregulation. And that played a little bit of a part of it. But really, the problem was that the Federal Reserve kept interest rates insanely too low. And when interest rates are really low, what does that do to the housing market? It makes it more affordable and it increases demand. That's why we're seeing right now in our housing market, interest rates are low and demand is through the roof. Talking to realtors here in Poway, um, yeah, the homes are selling in a matter of weeks when they used to take six months to sell. Um, and it's because interest rates are artificially low. You would think 
that when the demand for money is so high, when the demand for money is so great, that the price of money, the interest rate would go up. But the Federal Reserve kept interest rates artificially low, which, by the way, helps the rich and harms the poor and makes you know, savings um, offer very little interest. Um, but the Great Recession wasn't caused by tax cuts for the rich. Not at all. The Great Recession was caused by government policy, primarily the Federal Reserve, and then to a lesser degree, policies that encourage home ownership, particularly of people that really didn't have the proper economic means to afford it. Dana goes on to say, how many people have capital to get a business started? Capitalism is not the same today as it was 100 years ago. It's why we have shows like Shark Tank. Well, I'll tell you what, it depends what kind of business you start, Dana. If, if you want to manufacture some kind of a product, yeah, you're going to need capital. Um, you're going to need capital to invest in people, um, whether you're going to hire people to build that product or you're going to um, outsource to a third party to build the product for you. Yeah, you're going to need capital. But you know what? I started my business and guess how much capital I used to start it? Less than $1,000. I bought a computer. I got an internet connection and I went to work. Um, what I did is I took my skills and experience that I had earned, learned in my job. And, you know, by the way, that's one of the great things about a job is you're not only making money, you're also accruing experience and learning new skills. I then started up a moonlighting business that eventually turned in. It became so big, I quit my day job and I started my own company. And granted, I'm not Jeff Bezos, but, you know, I'm, I've been a, a, an entrepreneur now for, gosh, I incorporated in 04. So, 17 years? That's amazing, really. Um, you, could, you don't necessarily need giant capital to start a business. Now, of course, it makes it helpful. Um, you got to start with something. But a lot of times you can build up into that situation. Or in this case with Shark Tank, I mean, what are they doing in Shark Tank? They're looking for investors, right, to provide some of that capital, help get those businesses off the ground because – Rich people want to invest in businesses that are going to give them a return on their investment. And when that rich person invests in that Shark Tank candidate, that money trickles down. That money circulates. That money cascades into the coffers of that business and pays for the salaries of those employees even before they've generated a nickel in revenue. So it still works. But yeah, you got if you want to start a business, having capital is really helpful. And in some cases... Uh, 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 an absolute necessity. But I've often contended that people will blame trickle down. And I, I think a lot of cases unfairly, a lot, there are people that are in dire straits in this economy. It's a lot of it's because of a lot of other things. Housing is insane expensive to buy or rent in California. Crazy. Why are housing prices so expensive? Because A, I told you there's huge demand because interest rates are low, but at the same time, there's very little supply. The government keeps the regulatory code, the zoning laws that prevent construction. I mean, we see that here in Poway. They finally broke down and started building, but for the longest time, Poway was resistant to having more development. And by limiting supply and having strong demand, what happens to prices? They go up. People want to live in California, and there's only so much rental property available, then rent prices are going to go up. It's just supply and demand. Some people are in difficult situations because the cost of living is high. Some people are in difficult situations because they weren't able to adapt their career to the new global economy. Um, there's a lot of reasons. Some 
that are their own fault, some that are not their fault at all, some of which they were in the wrong place at the wrong time or were a pawn in the game and lost. There's a lot of cases like that. But it's not because of tax cuts. That's not the reason. (laughs) If anything, tax cuts would help. Tax cuts would release more money cascading through the private sector or what I'll call the productive sector, where that money can be transformed into wealth. That money can be put to more productive reasons to create products and services that benefit people's lives and create wealth, not just for wealth at the top, but wealth in the middle and even for wealth at the bottom so people can move up. So, well, I've been on a bit of a rant here on this, but it's something I just feel very passionately about. And I know I have a lot of people that disagree with me. I know I'm sure people are going to throw me links and say, see, this research analyst, this financial professor has proven that trickle down was a failure. Well, again, I would always say failed at what? (laughs) What is the measurement? Um, What are we comparing it to? Uh, But I think we've seen in the course of history that as taxes, uh, when taxes are lower, it encourages more activity and encourages more entrepreneurship and innovation in the private sector. And that is what's going to lift us up. That's what's going to encourage. It's going to create opportunity for people at the bottom to get good jobs, to build skills and careers so they can ratchet themselves up um, and build their income and ultimately build their wealth. So that wealth gap, that income gap can narrow. The way we're going to do that is by unwinding the rigging at the top that blocks competitors or bails out the rich, get rid of all that nonsense, and at the bottom, remove all the traps. Um, Traps like the war on drugs that throws people in jail for 20 years for a petty crime, um, which then creates single parents and a generational cyclical welfare situation where people get trapped in poverty. And there's so many cases like that where poor people are the victims of a terrible system that oppresses them and traps them in poverty. But it's not tax cuts that do that. It's police brutality that does that. It's um, it's terrible government schools in some parts of our country that do that. Um, it's a lot of those things that do that. So again, I welcome your thoughts and comments. Again, I know when I talk about taxes, I, I'm very passionate about it. I have my own opinion. I know a lot of people disagree with me. I know some people strongly disagree with me to the point that they may call me names. (laughs) I understand that because I know people feel very differently on this on this topic. Some people want tax rates to be like where they were in the Eisenhower era when the top marginal tax rate was around 92 percent. But did you know, by the way, that if you look at the effective tax rate of the top one percent and I say effective, meaning When you look at the total amount of taxes they paid as a percentage of revenue, okay, because you you might have a top marginal tax rate of 92% during the 1950s, but no one paid that or very few did because there were so many deductions and and shelters and other kinds of um, ways to play the game. I mean, even back then in the 1950s, you could deduct the interest from your car. You could go out on a three martini lunch and deduct the full expense of that. And that's just too you know, kind of trivial examples. There's a lot of other cases where there were so many deductions during that time frame that no one paid that. And the effective tax rate in the 1950s and the effective tax rate today for the top 1%, not that different. It might be maybe 4%, 6% different now than it was then. I could show you information if anyone wants to see it. 
Um, but it's again, I think we have to think through that when we push to increase taxes, what that does is it puts a drag on the economy or it invites more gamesmanship more tax deductions and loopholes that the government sets up. So when people spend their money in certain ways, that's how they rig the economy through the tax code and through regulatory power. They rig it that way to protect the wealth at the top. So they can say, oh, we've got a 92% top marginal tax rate, but no one really pays that. I mean, again, we can keep going on this, but I invite your thoughts and comments. But the, the main point of today is for Dana and Sarah High School. And I think, you know, I think it's it's actually a good thing they're changing their name. I don't have any objection to it at all. I understand, Dana, that you do because you're an alum. I understand that. But for non-alumni, I don't see the objection. Some people will think it's cancel culture. I don't think it is. I think it's just a, a reassessment of the school and their values and how that matches up with the values of today. Um. I don't and, and and frankly, the students of the school, ultimately the customers of the school, are the ones that want to see it change, and they're pushing for change from within. That's a great thing. Young people doing what they believe is right. Um, so, but again, I, I have a lot of interesting feelings about Father Yunipra Sarah, just because of my background up in the Bay Area, and all the Sarah High School in San Mateo, and the big Yunipra Sarah statue along the 280 freeway, if you've ever seen it. And then also, like I I told you, I have my project of the California missions. I'm looking forward to going to the other half. They're almost all in Northern California. That's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to that, but I got to wait for COVID to end. Um, That it's a, it's a great, by the way, if you ever do that, it's a great excuse for a road trip. And there's also, there's a great uh, mission in Oceanside um, and it's called, um, is it Mission Del Rey, I think is what it's called, if I remember the name. And right next door to the mission is like a, a little, um, th- there's like a couple of shops, you know, it's like a, a very small commercial district in the neighborhood there. And there is a Mexican bakery there that is out of this world. It's awesome. Homemade tortillas, and they have a lot of baked goods there. And I think you can have lunch there. And it's right next to the the, the mission there in Oceanside. Um Again, is it Mission? Is it Del Rey? I think that's the name of it. Um, but that's that's a great day trip just to go up there. And they have docents, so they'll walk you through and give you a tour. And it's not expensive. It's like, I don't know, five bucks, 10 bucks. And, um, and you're donating to help them keep the mission up. And you learn about the history. And it gives you a unique pers- perspective. You learn a lot of things. And it's a great way to get out of the house and do something fun with a family member or a friend. So I encourage that. Okay, um, we're at an hour and a half. This is long, gone on long too much. Uh, so this is the John Riley Project, episode number two hundred and eleven. Um, looking forward to having more conversations about local issues. I generally don't want to dwell too much on federal issues, but they're just so darn topical. Um, but I'm looking forward to having more discussion on local issues in San Diego County and even here in our community of Poway, California. So until then, we'll catch you later. Thank you so much. Please like, please share, please subscribe and share the love. And we'll be back at you Friday at 2 p.m. See you, friends. Stay dry out there.